1: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. We had begun our jury selection process this morning, but I've been informed that there is a change of plea.
2: And then there was another change of plea and another. As the dominoes started falling in the Georgia racketeering case, accusing Donald Trump and 18 others of scheming to keep Trump in power after he lost the 2020 election.
3: How do you plead to count 15 conspiracy to commit filing false documents in indictment number 23SC188947?
4: Guilty.
2: Four have now pleaded guilty, including three lawyers. Sidney Powell pleaded guilty to six misdemeanors last Thursday. Kenneth Chesborough pleaded to one felony the next day. And on Tuesday, Jenna Ellis pleaded to one felony tearfully.
5: I believe in and I value election integrity. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse.
2: Here to discuss how all this flipping affects the case against Trump is Michael Moore of Moore Hall, the former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia. So, Michael, four down, 15 to go. How significant are these pleas?
4: I think it's significant any time that you have a co-defendant flip and the lawyers flipping are a little bit of a different bird, maybe, than we normally see. When I listened to Miss Ellis and the charges against her, you heard a lot about the Trump campaign. You heard about her direction from other, I think she called them more senior, more experienced lawyers. And that seems to me probably where the biggest jeopardy lies, and that is with those lawyers who have instructed her to, to do something. So it sounded like that would be potentially Mr. Eastman and Mr. Giuliani. And of course, if they have pressure on them and they were then to cooperate, then they may get to the next level, which would be closer, I think, to the former president.
2: These are all sweetheart deals, aren't they? The lawyers' deals?
4: They are. They are unusually light. I mean, remember that this case had been tagged as essentially the largest election fraud case in history or something like that. And it will be a massive RICO case, and people are basically walking away uh, with a slap on the wrist. They end up with probation, no jail time, and a first offender plea, which means that at the end of a certain period of their probation and the completion of those requirements, the charges are essentially dismissed. So they end up with no record. They can vote. They can have a gun. They can do all those things once they have completed the requirements that the court set out. So They're unusually light, and they're especially light when you compare them with the sentences received by people who were involved at the Capitol on January the 6th, many of whom had jail sentences, some of them very significant. So it's maybe a little bit like the architects of the building are not going to jail. The construction workers (laughs) who worked on the building are. That's sort of how I see it. So
2: I can see why Willis gave the deals at this point to Powell and Chesbro so that Mm -hmm. she wouldn't have to go to trial against them early and reveal evidence to Trump. But why give a deal, such a good deal, to Jenna Ellis?
4: I think probably she has made some statements that the DA will find useful against other people in the indictment. I don't know necessarily that that's Trump, but I think she probably gave them enough information to at least move forward. And also too, I mean, she was essentially a mouthpiece for other folks involved with the campaign. And her culpability, I think, was probably less than other people who may have been more of a puppet master than she was.
2: CNN, I believe, is reporting that Willis is talking to six more defendants. Who will be left to go to trial once it comes time for trial? I mean, does she have a number in mind besides Trump?
4: I think there may be maybe a half dozen people or a few less that will be left standing. And those may be Trump and Giuliani. That may be one. Eastman may be another. People who think they have different constitutional arguments to make, they uh, may be stronger arguments. It will be interesting to see how Meadows is involved. I mean, we've heard that he has uh, was offered some immunity or cut a deal with Jack Smith. That's very interesting to me, given the statements that he has made in the Georgia case, especially during his motion to remove the case to federal court. And, you know, essentially he came to Atlanta in federal court and said everything i was doing was lawful this is part of my job I and mean, it's protected activity and it should entitle me as a federal official to move my case to federal court and it sounds like to the contrary when he got to washington dc he decided that he wanted to cut a deal with the special counsel and tell him that well i don't know that i was doing the right thing and i tried to tell the former president that he was telling lies or whatever i'm not quoting again, but something to that effect i don't think those are necessarily consistent positions and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out so I don't know if Ms. Willis at this point, given the objections that he made to having his case tried in Fulton County, will look as favorably on a potential plea offer from him. So he may be one of the few that remain.
2: That's really interesting because he has a very experienced attorney representing him. Do you let your client testify in a federal case to something that's going to cause you jeopardy in a state case?
4: I don't think you do. And I think that's the problem. And I do think he has a very good lawyer. I just think some of the statements that he may have made in the federal court here in Atlanta may not be exactly consistent with positions that he has taken to the special counsel. And I don't know how you claim that what you were doing was part of your actual lawful role as a chief of staff and then suggest somehow that what you were doing, you know, you had objections to because you thought your boss was not telling the truth and this kind of thing. So those will be maybe inconsistencies, and we would have to see actually the substance of each statement side by side. We haven't seen those yet, but any inconsistencies certainly give room to attack credibility with a witness. and may give fodder to a defense attorney to raise objections and certainly may give some interest at least to a prosecutor to decide whether or not you know that witness needs to be put on uh, as a cooperating witness or whether or not that witness and defendant needs to simply move forward toward trial.
2: So this scenario is what they think about when they say the dominoes are falling?
4: Well, it is. You know, if you think about a line of dominoes, a circle of dominoes or whatever, you know, you could pick a domino in the middle of the line and push it to the right or the left, but only the ones in the direction it's falling, are going to continue to fall. And so that's why prosecutors try to work from the bottom up. They want to push somebody that has information at the bottom to try to get to the top. And so Some people argue you should work your way down. That's not necessarily fair to those people who are much less culpable, but you push generally from the bottom to the top, cut deals with the people who are less culpable to try to get people who are really the masterminds or the, the more guilty of the organization. Here, I think there have been some... Middle of the line pushing, if you will, and the dominoes have fallen maybe in one direction, which is why I think you saw ultimately a deal cut with Jenna Ellis. Now, whether or not she then also can have information toward the top, I don't know. But when we saw Miss Powell, Mr. Chesbro, Miss Ellis, you know, in her pleas, I think that was a section maybe of this arrangement of dominoes and arrangement of defendants that sort of has now concluded itself. But for the other lawyers who remain in the case, the key will be in the bridge the prosecutor will have to make will be getting from those folks, in fact, to the people at the top of the line. And the question is, what information do they have that will get them there? I don't know if Ms. Powell has information about that or not. She was president of a meeting. She may have information about who said what. At the same time, I don't think that she's going to be able to put former president's fingerprints on Coffee County as we get there. I do think, and I thought this was sort of telling of the things to come, when Miss Ellis made the comment that she was simply doing what she had been advised to do, I think you're hearing a preview of the defense we're gonna hear from the former president. That is, in fact, I was simply doing what my lawyers told me I should do or what I had a right to do. I was simply following legal advice at the time. And then I think we open up the can of executive privilege, whether or not he's allowed to rely on information from lawyers and advisors, uh, we know that the president is not covered by the Hatch Act, any president. And so this whole issue of, well, was it a campaign or were you the president? You know That may not be a hurdle as we go forward. And so I do think you're going to hear a lot about, look, I was doing what my lawyers and advisors told me to do. I had taken advice from a number of different councils. Some of them had different opinions. I had to make a choice. I felt like we had a legitimate move forward on the alternate electorate scheme, as told to me by Mr. Chesbrough. He cited to me the issue and the circumstances in the Hawaii case from the 1960s or whatever it was. And so this is what you're going to hear. And and ultimately, I think many of the decisions and the ultimate outcome of this case is going to rest not on allegations made in a trial court, but ultimately what an appellate court and, and like the United States Supreme Court decides is appropriate evidence and an appropriate charge when we're talking about a former president of the United States being charged for conduct occurring while, in fact, he was president of the United States. And so whether or not the appellate courts look at that and say, well, he does have some privilege or some immunity, I think that's still an open question.
2: Yeah, a question that may be answered first in the D.C. federal case. Thanks so much, Michael. That's Michael Moore, the former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia.
1: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
5: For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So, how'd they get it? Listen to the award winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back to Real Estate Investing Made Simple. Grant Cardone here in the Cardone Zone every Monday. I said, Steve, what did I pay you last month? Steve was paid $3,120 last month because he invested at CardoneCapital.com. CardoneCapital.com. CardoneCapital.com.
2: The Supreme Court declined to hear a case involving a lawsuit against real estate management company Cardone Capital and its CEO for making misleading statements in YouTube and Instagram videos. The lawsuit was dismissed on other grounds, but the core issue remains. Does hyping investment projects or touting crypto tokens on social media make someone a seller who can be sued under federal law by investors who are defrauded or who bought an unregistered security? To put it another way, what happens when a 90-year-old securities law meets social media? Joining me is Anne Lipton, a business law professor at Tulane University. So Anne, let's start with the basics, the very basics. Tell us about the securities laws and where this definition of seller becomes important
6: okay so section 12 is from the 1933 securities act and it basically has two separate provisions the first is that a purchaser of a security that was sold unregistered when it should have been registered has a right to sue the seller basically it's a right of rescission they can give the security back and ask for their money back minus any income they've earned on it so they can Sue whoever sold it to them if it was sold in violation of the registration provisions. And then, secondly, they can sue anyone who sold it to them or who solicited the purchase if the prospectus or sales documents contained false statements. Now, sometimes there's a bit of a debate about what counts as a prospectus, but what it comes down to is that this is sometimes a more attractive option than, say, more traditional ways of suing for false statements, like Section 10b, which is the anti-fraud statute. Because if you sue for false statements in connection with essentially these unregistered security sales under Section 12, you don't have to show that you relied on the false statement and you don't have to show that there was any intent to make a false statement.
2: And so how did the Supreme
6: Court define a seller in 1988? So in the case of Pinter versus Dahl, there was a question of who counts as a statutory seller. In other words, Section 12 speaks of people who sell securities. So the question was, do you have to be actually the person who transferred title me to you, or could it be other people who are somewhat involved with the sale? And the court first said it has to be either a direct transfer of title, or it has to be someone who solicited the purchase. But they drew a distinction between someone who is somehow involved and had something to do with the buyer actively going out and purchasing the security. And instead they said they have to have actually solicited and had some kind of relationship with the buyer. They rejected a test that would be somehow like people who are just substantially participate in the sale. So that was interpreted by courts to mean that you could only be liable under Section 12 if you literally transferred title, it was your security and you sold it to someone else. Or if you had some kind of direct contact with a relationship with the buyer so that you induce the purchase that way.
2: So in our world of social media where venture capital firms and others are hyping investment projects online, are courts having a difficult time Determining whether they're sellers or not?
6: Yeah, so the issue here is that after Pinter versus Dahl, there were a bunch of cases involving what were basically registered offerings. They were registered offerings, they were IPOs, where people sued for false statements in the IPO documents. Now, there's a cause of action specifically for that false statements in a registration statement under Section 11. And they would also sue under Section 12 because Section 12 has liability both for unregistered offerings, which these weren't, or for false statements in a prospectus. And courts rejected the Section 12 liability, looking at Pinter in a lot of cases where there was no direct contact with the buyer. So, for example, issuing companies, it was their securities, but they sold in a firm commitment underwriting, meaning the underwriters bought the securities from the issuer, the underwriters then sold to the public the purchaser would try to sue the issuer under Section 12 because the issuer's name is all over the prospectus. It's like their company. It's their (laughs) securities being sold. And the courts would say the issuer did not have enough direct involvement with this particular sale to this buyer to justify imposing Section 12 liability. Now, you could still have other forms of liability because these were registered offerings, but you couldn't have liability under Section 12. So the court reading Pinter Dow down very narrowly to mean you have to have had some kind of contact with a relationship with the buyer. So now we fast forward to crypto. And the problem is there isn't an alternative scheme because crypto, assuming it's a security, which is a whole separate thing, but let's assume it's a security. (laughs) If crypto is a security, it's not registered. So the liability regime that was available in those IPO cases for registered offerings is not available to these shareholders. So for these shareholders, Section 12 is sort of the main potential avenue of liability other than the anti-fraud laws, which are much harder. So they're suing under Section 12 because that's it. And what we've seen now is two appellate courts said, direct contact? We never said that. What what are you talking about? (laughs) It counts as a solicitation as long as you make these public statements in advertising urging people to buy. That's a solicitation, even if there's no personal relationship. Meanwhile, there are at least a couple of other decisions that say, no, we're sticking to the old interpretations of Pinter, that there have to be this kind of direct relationship. And then you have courts that are sort of like saying, in a case against Coinbase, That Coinbase with airdrops and and materials about particular securities, that wasn't a solicitation, but it's not exactly clear why. You know, the court just says that's not enough. So we don't know exactly what's enough or what exactly the regime is going to be.
2: The Supreme Court decided not to take a case involving Cardone Capital.
6: Well, that was a case that was actually, it wasn't a registered offering. I believe it was under Regulation A. So Regulation A is an exemption from a full on registered offerings, but it does require some degree of filing and disclosure with the SEC. So it wasn't an unregistered offering. But because it's not registered offerings, the standard protections available in registered offerings are not available to purchasers. Instead, the only liability available would be, you know, just straight up fraud, which is again very hard to prove or Section 12 liability. That's what's available. And so this real estate company, they use social media to advertise the offering that was filed with the sec they had documents with the sec and so forth and shareholders claimed that these advertisements were solicitations and the ninth circuit agreed and repudiated i mean you know some of the case law that had held There must be direct contact hadn't come out of the Ninth Circuit. So at the very least, it was disagreeing with the other courts that had imposed something like a direct contact requirement. But the Supreme Court denied cert. I mean, there are any number of reasons why they could have denied cert. But one possibility is that the social media cases are new. They're, you know, looking to this old precedent that was generated under IPO situations. And, you know, it may take some time to work through the court.
2: You know, if you ask an average person, it doesn't seem like it's a difficult question, they're online, they're soliciting,
6: yeah, they're selling, what makes it so difficult? Well, because the interesting thing is that the word solicit doesn't actually appear in the statute. Nothing in the statute says imposing liability for solicitation. What the statute says is imposing liability for selling. The Supreme Court's interpretation of selling in printer versus Dahl, this case from 1988, is the one that imposed this concept of solicitation with this very specific kind of definition. And to be honest, printer doesn't seem to really understand how security sales work. <laughs> <laughs> there are parts of it that display a kind of lack of understanding. For instance, there's a line in it that says you can't have liability for a seller's seller, that if you sell to somebody and that person sells to someone else, the original seller isn't going to be liable. But that's a firm commitment underwriting. And courts have been struggling with that. The SEC has been struggling with that ever since Pinter versus Dahl held it. So, you know, this concept of solicitation and exactly how we're defining it is not in the statute. It comes from the Supreme Court case law. And so now we're all trying to figure out what the Supreme Court meant and how you translate a case in 1988 to today. The Ninth and the Eleventh Circuits... Are they in sync, their rulings? Yeah, they seem to be following the same path. At, you know, at the very least, these sort of widespread social media campaigns are sufficient. But what's really unclear is, like, what would be like? I mean, once you take away the requirement of direct contact, which is how courts seem to be reading it before, then there's the question of, well, how much urging is enough? And that was exactly what happened with Coinbase, where, you know, Coinbase technically did have direct contact. It was talking to its customers. And it, you know, does whatever it does to say, you know, here's an airdrop of a new security or whatever. And a court said, well, that's just not enough. So now we have all kinds of questions. Like if social media is, is permissible, if you don't have the restriction of direct contact, then how much urging is enough to qualify solicitation, given that in Pinter, the Supreme Court's concern was, We don't want just substantial participation to be enough. And the reason we don't was because we want people to have certainty as to when they are potentially liable or not. It's important that we have certainty. Direct contact, at least, that's a rule. It may not be the best rule. It may not be the most functional rule, but we know what it means. We know it when we see it. (laughs) Now we're in this space where it's not clear what's going to be enough.
2: Why don't these, in quotes, sellers want to register just to be safe?
6: So first of all, the crypto people all say these aren't securities anyway. But the whole point is that if you register them, there's a terrific amount of disclosure you have to make. And there's very strict liability if those disclosures are false. That's why courts could get away for so long saying, well, we won't have Section 12 liability for these IPO situations because there were alternatives. There's some very strict liability for false statements if you register. You have to do a terrific amount of disclosure it's very expensive and you're risking this liability and a lot of crypto people say that the registration requirements like the disclosure requirements that attach are simply not suitable for crypto. Like they ask for things that don't make sense in the crypto context, like principles of an organization when it's a decentralized autonomous organization or addresses when there is no address. So the crypto people would say that not only is disclosure expensive and opens us up to all this liability, but the SEC hasn't updated the registration requirements to really make sense in a crypto world.
2: So then will it be up to the Supreme Court
6: to clarify this so that there is Clearer guidance, very possibly. I mean, you know, there's a lot that could happen in between now and then. I mean, first of all, if all the circuits come to settle on something, I mean, the Supreme Court doesn't have the kind of passion for securities <laughs> cases that say I do. So, um, so if the circuits coalesce around a principle that's coherent, then the Supreme Court may not step in at all. And you know, we can all argue about it, but I, you know, I'm not convinced that crypto is you know the wave of the future. So at some point, if crypto is becomes less popular, then we may just see less of these cases. I mean, Regulation A was how this came up in the Ninth Circuit, and that will still exist because that's sort of a formal disclosure space for securities that you don't want to do full registration for. But reggae isn't really that popular to begin with. So, I mean, if crypto becomes less of a thing, it may simply be that the, the dispute kind of settles down by itself.
2: Well, it's been great to talk to you, Ann. I love your enthusiasm about securities law. That's Ann Lipton, a business law professor at Tulane University.
1: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE.
5: Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now.
1: Donald Trump versus Michael Cohen or Michael Cohen versus Donald Trump. This is about accountability, plain and simple.
2: But it did seem a lot like Michael Cohen versus Donald Trump, as Trump's former lawyer and fixer took the stand against him this week in New York State's $250 million civil fraud case against the former president. And it also seemed like Trump saw it that way.
1: He's a liar trying to get a better deal for himself, but uh, it's not going
2: to work And what played out during Cohen's testimony at times seemed more like a TV legal drama than a real trial. Joining me is someone who was there for, I'm going to save the show, Pat, Patricia Hurtado, Bloomberg legal reporter. Pat, this was the first time in five years that Trump and Cohen have come face to face. What was it like in the courtroom where they were just about 20 feet from each other?
3: They had a stare down match when it came time. For Cohen to take the stand, Trump his whole body was pivoted with his seat turned to look at the witness box.
2: Did the prosecution start by having Cohen testify about his past crimes?
3: He described what he pled guilty to. Of course, he's backtracked from what his actual crimes were and, you know, sort of said that he didn't commit some of the frauds that they assert that he committed. But the state attorney general's office was asking him basically to describe what he was supposed to do for Donald Trump. And he said between 2012 until 2015, each year, Trump would ask him to come into his office. Along with Alan Weisselberg and you know, basically asked him to quote unquote re engineer the finances and ask him, you know, how much do you think I'm worth? And then Trump would say, I'm actually not worth three point seven billion, it should be eight billion. And he and Weisselberg would have to go back and go through the numbers and reevaluate all the properties and assets to come up with the figure that Donald Trump had decided was his net worth.
2: So Donald Trump was just getting this figure you know, out of thin air? Yes,
3: yeah, basically. Donald Trump wanted something, and so they would go back, and he and Weiselberg would put their heads together and try to value assets, be it golf courses or whatever, so that they would achieve the number that Trump named.
2: And Alan Weiselberg, who was the former Trump Organization CFO, has already testified at the trial. Did he confirm these meetings?
3: This is the first time we've had an insider's look about what these meetings were about. Weisselberg was very cagey when he testified. Weisselberg is a defendant. He, along with Donald Trump, was sued by the state AG. So he wasn't very forthcoming and helpful. And so this is the first time we're getting descriptions of these meetings happening with Trump calling them in. He said basically his boss called him in and told him what he wanted.
2: Were there any surprises in the documents that Cohen testified
3: about? Well, I mean, it's just kind of shocking to see these things, because then we were shown the actual statements of financial condition and the statements about Trump's net worth. And they would say, like, Trump is worth $8 billion or something like that. And they would say, oh, by the way, we're adding a 30% premium to the fact that this is a a golf course that has been constructed and in good condition. (laughs) And so basically, you know, Trump is giving credit for the brand because the building's complete and the construction is finished. You know, that's like saying my house is worth 30% more because I keep the upkeep nicely outside and I have a nice little window box outside, (laughs) you know, he said... I was tasked by Mr. Trump to increase the total assets based upon a number he arbitrarily selected. And my responsibility, along with Alan Weisselberg predominantly, was to reverse engineer the various different asset classes and increase those assets in order to achieve the number that Mr. Trump had tasked us to do. That's the heart of this case. I mean, Letitia James, the New York attorney general, asserts that Trump has inflated his assets where the argument was from the Trump people is, well, you know, there's all these uh, disavowals and declarations that warn the reader of these documents to say, you know, we don't really stand by these documents. They're just a number. Right. And we saw this document from 2014 where Trump was trying to fly the Buffalo Bills football team and he claimed to be worth eight billion dollars. And that was a big discussion. Trump's lawyers were saying that it's no fair. You can't bring this in. There's no evidence. This claim of trying to buy the Buffalo Bills was ever made to anybody, and he didn't buy the Buffalo Bills. So what's the harm? No foul, right? And the judge allowed it finally into evidence because the AG's office says, well, you know what? He claimed that this was his net worth, and these are the documents that went to Morgan Stanley, which was accepting bids. So Trump claimed he wanted to put in a billion-dollar bid to buy the Buffalo Bills in 2014, and he claimed to be worth $8 billion. And he had Deutsche Bank bankers back him with, you know, an attesting letter from Deutsche Bank saying that he was valuable, and they had seen his net worth. When Michael Cohen is saying, hey, it's all about House of Cards built on nothing.
2: And was it Michael Cohen's testimony that got the AG
3: started investigating Trump? Yeah. In- Cohen's claims have basically triggered all sorts of investigations. He's testified about seven different congressional investigations. It prompted an investigation of the Hush Money case. It prompted all kinds of investigations of Trump and his assets. Now we stand here, and I'm not saying that he's the only whistleblower, but he was the insider that said, this is what Trump was doing. And it started everybody looking at him. And certainly this case originated from Michael Cohen's complaint.
2: And I understand that the cross-examination got nasty
3: pretty quick. Yeah. I mean, you know, Cohen's a lawyer and he got very offended when Alina Hava, who is Trump's lawyer, started asking him questions about that he lied to a federal judge, just like he lied to his wife on his tax returns. And Cohen got very angry and there was a lot of back and forth, you know, asked and answered. It was like a movie watching people arguing and bickering on the stand. <laughs> it was like Cohen is a lawyer and he objected. He goes, objection. So he as a witness objected to Alina's question. <laughs> you don't see that other day. No, you don't. And you know, at one point Alina shot back, You're not on Mayo Copa, you're not on your podcast, you're not on CNN. Answer my question. So you can see there's a little bit of drama playing on both sides. This is Cohen. I'm objecting to your question. And at one point, probably we've all heard, you know, when the judge will say that question was asked and answered. And Mm -hmm. that's an objection. And Cohen said asked and answered because she kept repeating about four times. Did you lie to Judge Pauly, who is the federal judge? He pled guilty to and then subsequently Cohen claimed that he was forced to plead guilty by his lawyers and he hadn't really committed some of the crimes that he pled guilty to originally.
2: And this is in front of a judge. So all of this is. Yeah, so this is like, right.
3: This is exactly right. There's almost like two divergent trials going on at the same time. There's the trial that's being held if you had a jury and the lawyers are being very dramatic and even the witness to, you know, I object. And you're watching some kind of, like, reality TV show of someone playing a lawyer, and that's being played to as if there were a jury. And that might be more effective if there were a jury, but there isn't a jury. And obviously, it seems like some of the lawyers know they have a very important client, and his name is Donald Trump. So they're asking questions to please him. And then again, you have one person who is the jury of one who is Judge N. Goran, who's deciding this. So that's what I say. It's like a parallel universe. There's two parallel trials, the one that's being played out by the parties in the well, as well as the one that's actually going on before the judge. And he has to keep reminding the lawyers, you know, actually, there's a, no jury here. I'm the trier of fact. So did Trump react during Cohen's testimony that you could see? Oh, he had his arms crossed and he was really, he muttered something under his breath I could not hear. Someone else claimed they had heard him say something about Cohen's credibility, but he was obviously very annoyed. And like I said, he literally turned his entire chair around with his arms crossed to glare at Cohen.
2: And more drama to come as Ivanka Trump has been ordered to testify. That may be as soon as next week. Thanks so much, Pat. That's Bloomberg Legal Reporter Patricia Hurtado.
1: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE.
5: Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now.
1: Uh, Meta, of course, is the parent company of Instagram and Facebook for knowingly harming the mental health of young social media users. In short, Meta intentionally designed its social media platform to be more addictive to kids and young people.
2: 41 states are suing Meta platforms, claiming it exploits young people for profit by building in addictive features that basically hook kids on Instagram and Facebook, harming their mental health. At a press conference by the Attorney General of Washington State, two teenagers described their struggles trying to cope with social media sites like Instagram.
5: The worst part was, these pictures and videos were never ending. The addictive algorithm and the constant flood of new content kept me glued to my phone. And before I knew it, I began to hate myself and the way I looked. This all happened before I turned 13.
6: I would go on my phone, intending to do other things, and then instinctively start opening up Instagram, opening up different social media platforms um, without even meaning to, and then getting stuck in the cycle of scrolling, seeing other people's um, lives and interactions.
2: Joining me is Matthew Shettenhelm, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst. So, Matt, the federal lawsuit says... Meta did not disclose that its algorithms were designed to capitalize on young users' dopamine responses and create an addictive cycle of engagement. So the allegation is that Meta specifically designed an algorithm to hook teenagers.
7: That's exactly right. So the lawsuit takes aim at a number of features that are sort of fundamental to how Meta designs its social media platforms, using data about the teens to send them content that keeps them scrolling and keeps them reading, sending them notifications that keep them coming back to the service as soon as they look away from it, using the like system that entices them and draws them in and pushes them to put more content out there. And the allegation is that Meta knew that its social media service was harmful to teens, but it withheld that knowledge and misled users and proceeded to deliver its product to teens anyway. There's a separate lawsuit actually in the same federal court that goes to the design of the product itself and whether that violates product liability law or whether Facebook was negligent in designing it. This suit's a little bit different. It's not about the design itself. It's about did Meta lie? Did it mislead users?
2: And a lot of this is based on the whistleblower who released internal documents in 2021?
7: Yeah, I think that's the real start of this. When Frances Haugen came out with her release of the internal documents suggesting that Facebook knew more about the risk to children than it was letting on. So this has really been playing out ever since that moment. Now, Facebook disputes her allegations and says that they're overblown. And that's the sort of allegation that would be tested in this case if it gets past a motion to dismiss.
2: Meta said, we share the attorney general commitment to providing teens with safe, positive experiences online and have already introduced over 30 tools to support teens and their families. Do you know what kind of tools they're talking about?
7: I think these are features like there are settings that teens can put on the product to turn off after you know so many minutes on the product. I think there are a handful of features like that that they have added. If you go into the settings, you can turn off the data that is used about you for ads. I think as a practical matter, these features may not be used all that frequently. I know my teenager doesn't jump to find those features, and I suspect that's true of many other teens as well. So I think the negotiation here before this lawsuit was filed was the states likely trying to push Meta to find more features and more effective features. And and I think eventually, if you saw this lawsuit settle, you might see a push for even more in that direction.
2: Thanks, Matt. That's Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Matthew Schettenhelm. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show.